This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we read it from Genesis and Romans, as well as what we find in the 10th word of the covenant in Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. As well as then what the church has confessed and summarized concerning that commandment in Lord's Day 44 of the Idleburg Catechism. So we read together from Lord's Day 44, where the church echoes God's word in this way What does the tenth commandment require of us? that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life, no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing together Psalm 119, stanzas 14 and 15. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you know the story of how a former United States vice president and billionaire Nelson Rockefeller was once asked by a reporter how much money it takes to be happy. Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. It sounds a lot like, for example, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. Consumption is a way of life in our culture. No matter how much we have, we always want a little bit more. Society has an appetite for bigger and newer things. Well, this afternoon we've come to the Tenth Commandment, and you might call this the last of God's laws, but really it isn't the last, but it's the first. We focus this afternoon not on last things, but on first things. <clears throat> the Lord is not really issuing a totally new command, the command not to covet. It's more accurate to see here that the Lord is bringing 
to our attention the very foundation of all his commands. It really all just begins here. Here in the 10th commandment, he's making absolutely explicit his call to you, give me your heart. That's the basis of all God's commands. The 10th commandment is the last in a series of laws where God is calling for our heartfelt obedience to all his commands. That's why he wants his law impressed upon us so strictly in the preaching. He wants to teach us, especially with this last law, that there is no such thing as easy obedience. God forbids even the slightest thought or desire not in agreement with his law. He calls for our heart. And yet even the holiest in this life cannot give that. We struggle to give him our whole heart. But the God who faces us in the 10th commandment is the same one we've seen throughout our study of the entire Ten Commandments. He's our God and Savior. He is the one who impresses upon us his laws so that we would live in gratitude before him. He's the God who delivered us by his blood and who renews us by his spirit. So, when you hear the proclamation to obey, you are... You are hearing the proclamation of Jesus Christ who gave himself for your life, your salvation, and your grateful, heartfelt obedience. And so I proclaim to you this word of our God. In the last of God's laws, he says, give me your heart. And we consider three things. First, the call for complete obedience. Secondly, the small beginning of our obedience. Thirdly, the encouragement for our obedience. So what is coveting, brothers and sisters? Can we understand it as essentially the same as desiring? Well, the 10th commandment is not forbidding every kind of longing or desire. Coveting is not simply wanting something we don't have. Coveting is wanting something that belongs to someone else. It's setting your heart on something that's not rightfully yours. And since it's a matter of the heart, no one else has to know about it. Man does not see what lies beneath the surface. Well, the application of the command not to covet seems straightforward enough. You are not to covet your neighbor's wife. That man's wife is always so friendly, and their house is always spotless. That wife has aged so well. Why couldn't mine? You're not to covet your neighbor's house. I wish my house had as many garages as his. I wish I could live in, it, in that 4,000-square-foot home. And they could live in our 1,500 square foot shanty. 
You're not to covet your neighbor's manservants, maidservants. Well, we don't have those today, by and large. Or maybe we do. The neighbor's manservants might be his hunting gear, his electronic gadgets, snowmobile, snowblower, lawnmower, even his vacations. The maidservants, the dishwasher, bread maker, coffee maker. Your neighbor might not own an ox or a donkey, but he has a four-wheeler, a faster car, a bigger tractor, and the Lord adds anything that belongs to your neighbor, anything, his smarts, physique, his sense of humor, his business prowess, her looks, her friends, her clothing, her parents. The Lord God has been pleased to give all these things to the neighbor, not to you. And so he says, do not covet. His law rules out every unlawful desire. Now why would God say that you shall not covet your neighbor's anything? What's the real problem with coveting? A lot of people regard coveting as really the last and also the least of God's laws. Somehow it just doesn't rank in the same league as the big sins like murder, adultery, stealing, And yet, God's word speaks against the sin of covetousness in the strongest words possible. Paul says that a covetous man is an idolater, Ephesians 5, verse 5. Elsewhere, he says that a coveter who is not sanctified by Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the real problem here? Well, as it is more often, one of the best ways to understand God's law is by going back to the beginning. There was no coveting in paradise. Everything God made, including what he put at Adam's fingertips, was declared very good. And Adam did not have these thoughts of discontentment in his heart. He didn't stroll around his garden, do his work with a sour look on his face. No, he was satisfied with what God had given. He did not even have discontentment because he didn't have a helpmeet. God was the one who said, it's not good for man to be alone. And what happens then when God forms the woman from one of Adam's ribs and gives her to him? Well, because God gave her to him and because God's creation was very good, Adam received his wife with great joy. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There is no hint of discontentment in Adam's heart. He doesn't wonder Why isn't her hair longer? Why isn't she slimmer? 
Why isn't she taller? No. Adam was content with God's gift. There was no coveting in that first week of creation. There was coveting in Genesis 3. The crafty serpent encouraged thoughts of discontentment in Eve's heart. What about that tree over there, Eve? And what about being like God? Shouldn't these be perks of the good life in paradise? And so it went. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Desirable to make one wise. The original there has the same word God used in the 10th commandment. So, when did sin enter the world? When Eve picked the fruit? When she ate the fruit? No. Sin was already there before that. Eve sinned before she ate, before she took. Eve sinned when she was no longer fully content with what God had given her to enjoy. In her heart, she said to God, you are not taking good care of me. I want, I need more. She felt she couldn't be satisfied until she had that last tree. Then she would be like God. That's what she wanted. So she took the fruit to gain something that God did not intend for her to have. And so sin that began in her heart moved to the eyes and from the eyes to the hands. Sin begins when the heart denies the goodness of the Lord. So what's the big deal, congregation? Coveting runs afoul of nothing less than the first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. The tenth commandment goes straight to the heart The other nine commandments explicitly condemn outward actions like making idols, working on the Lord's day, and looking lustfully at another. To be sure, these commandments also forbid sins of the heart, but they start on the outside and they work their way to the inside. The tenth law, however, starts at the inside. It's not concerned in the first place with what you do, but with what you desire to do. It proves that God judges the heart. That's where it all starts and from where it all grows. Eve, just, Eve didn't eat just on her own. She gave to her husband. God wants your heart. He wants the thoughts and the desires of your heart. And so he, in his sovereign wisdom, included in the covenant law this tenth word. 
unholy desires quickly turn into deadly desires. So Paul can write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's the kind of drowning that happened in, for the first time in paradise. And it brought all sorts of ruin into Adam and Eve's relationship with God, with one another. It brought banishment, strife, sickness, and death. So because coveting can be as fatal as any other sin, God in this commandment calls us to ask ourselves a very practical question. What does my heart want? And where will that want lead me? God wants us to examine our hearts to ensure that we're not just outwardly obedient to God, but that our very heart finds its contentment in God alone. Give me your heart. And that's a very tall order. Martin Luther once said, This last law is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. The 10th law, dear congregation, more than any other, convinces me I am a sinner. It had that effect, we saw, on the Apostle Paul. As he wrote in Romans 7, I would not have known what sin, would have not known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil, covetous, really, desire. Knowing the radical nature of the tenth law helps us to see how rampant our covetous desires really are. Well, this last of God's law, God's laws, is no mere afterthought, no anticlimax. Far from it. It convinces us that we are sinners in need of salvation. It shows to us that we need a savior. That reaction is precisely what our God wants because he has given to us a redeemer. It shows us we need a savior. God has delivered us not only from Egypt, from bondage to slavery, He's delivered us from bondage to our sin. This is the God in whom you and I may find contentment, delight, satisfaction. He says to you, I am the Lord, your God, your deliverer. Therefore, you shall not covet. Give to me your heart. 
This is the complete obedience required by God's law. And so we confess with all our heart we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. That's a matter of your heart. Hating sin and delighting in the righteousness of God. Delighting in his redemption, his promises. Well, that really then gives us no time to have thoughts or desires in our heart contrary to any of God's commandments. That's what God requires of us in the 10th commandment. And so we come to our second point where we see the small beginning of our obedience. It's clear from scripture, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is not pleased with half-hearted obedience, with merely external conformity to his law. He wants us to have a fire in our hearts. The radical nature of God's law calls for radical obedience. But the question arises, who can do it? Or, in the words of question 14, 114, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? Earlier in the Catechism, way back in Lord's Day 2, we learned that the natural, the unconverted man cannot even begin to show God the perfect love and perfect obedience which God requires. But in Lord's Day 44, the question is not about the natural man. It's asking the question about all those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. How is it with these people? These are the ones, after all, who have received a new heart. What's the situation with their ability to have the proper thoughts and desires that reflect the love for God and for his law? Well, the answer is always sobering if not humbling, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. What the catechism is saying here is, even within the circle of those converted to God, you have smaller circles. You have the holy, and then the holier, and then the holiest, from smallest to greatest in the kingdom of God. And no, that's not saying that there are top-notch Christians and then second-rate Christians and so on. All are converted, all are in Christ in the same way, male, female, slave, free, Jew or Greek. And really, in the grand scheme of things, the Catechism points out to us that no matter at what stage you might be, you still have miles upon miles to go. Even people that Scripture upholds as men of faith, Abraham, Amos, John, Paul, people we look up to, people of faith and prayer, they had but a small obedience, a small beginning of the obedience God requires. 
They had an, at times, clumsy, stumbling faith in this life. Paul called himself the chief, the chief of sinners. Job, the righteous Job who experienced the Lord's giving and the Lord's taking away, he concluded, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42. Well, the catechism then is very realistic because God's word is realistic. It presents you with the struggles of God's people throughout history. Romans 7. Paul again records his struggle. Verse 15, he says, what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. He follows up a few verses later. For the good that I will do, I don't do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. How true that is for us as well. You and I set out every day with the best of intentions. I'm not going to talk back to my parents or my teachers or my employer. I'm not going to exasperate my wife or my children. It usually doesn't last very long, does it? The evil I will not to do, that I practice. We face the same struggles today as the Apostle Paul. Indeed, every Christian, even the holiest, has this struggle. James 3 verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. What does this mean then? Is there really, in the end, no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? No, there's a very great difference. And it's found not so much in the deed as it is in the heart, in your attitude towards sin. Those who are converted to God are deeply bothered by the sin they still commit repeatedly. That's to say, brothers and sisters, that there is an inner change. Yes, God's standards are high, they are perfect, and we cannot keep them perfectly. Even as spirit-anointed Christians, we're still sinners. But we know it. We admit it. We say along with Paul, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. <laughs> but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Paul is speaking of his present struggle as a born again, spirit-filled believer. He's speaking as a converted person, as one who struggles. So he goes on to say in verse 22 and following, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. 
but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law which is in my members. It frustrates him to no end. And so he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He knows as a spirit-renewed Christian that there's a goal of perfection, but that he can barely get out of the starting blocks. Yet, he doesn't throw up his arms in despair. 25, chapter 7, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knows there's rescue from the sins he commits in Jesus Christ our Lord. At the same time, brothers and sisters, in the struggle against your sin, you may be encouraged that Christ is busy in you as we confess. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, we do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commands of God. That's a comforting confession. It's realistic. The nature of our life in Christ is that it develops gradually. Our God works on his own timetable. And what he has begun, he will most certainly complete. For he never forsakes the work of his hands. And so for our part, with earnest purpose, we are to forsake the works of the devil, of the flesh, all of them, and at the same time make us start with living according to the will of God. All of God's commands, including those with which we struggle the most in this life. We come to our final point where we see the encouragement for our obedience. Well, congregation, the last question and answer of of, uh, Lord's Day 44 is just not everyone's favorite. We can't keep the law perfectly. And so for many, the reading of the Ten Commandments on Sundays is rather unappealing. So when question and answer 155 comes along and says, why does God have them preach so strictly, it's question 115 rather, why does God have them preach so strictly? Well, then some really get their hackles up because the catechism has now tied the law to preaching. So question and answer 115 in the eyes of some is unnecessary since all it does is rub salt into open wounds. Oh yes, while this may not be a popular part of the catechism and and of the preaching, it is an essential part. The strict preaching of the law is something required by God, whose very servants, the prophets, as well as the chief prophet, set the example for us in their preaching. Preaching the law is an essential component when it comes to living a healthy 
Christian life. It encourages obedience out of a right frame of thinking. We need to go deeper, though. We need to go deeper, especially because what I've just said is so countercultural to today. Who loves the law today? The cry is often heard in many places, out with the law, in with the gospel. But our catechism helps us to appreciate, to understand why the strict preaching of the law is so vital. First, we confess, so that throughout our whole life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature. Scriptures call us to look inside, to see what really lives there. And what's there is not some hidden treasure waiting to be discovered, but rather our sinful nature. Christ says that our uncleanness is not a matter of the outside, but of the inside. Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 13, sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. All sorts of evil stuff is in our thoughts, words, and actions. It all comes from our hearts. and That's what the law exposes. Not so that we would stop here and become despondent, depressed, feel hopeless, but so that we will acknowledge this and look for help throughout our whole life. If If we were to put aside the Ten Commandments, be it in reading or in preaching them, we're no longer gonna see ourselves properly. And so we're no longer going to seek the only one who would clothe and heal us. <clears throat> isn't, it, isn't it true that the more Scripture exposes in us, the more we see our need for our Savior? Preaching the law is meant to confront us with our need for Christ, the truly obedient one. <clears throat> Yet, there's more that the strict preaching of the law is meant to do. Answer 115 says that throughout our whole life, we may seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Here, by the way, is a desire that we are permitted to have. The more sin becomes a frightening reality for you, the closer the gospel of redemption comes to you. There is again progress that the catechism points out for us. Perhaps those words of our Savior, without me you can do nothing, well perhaps they mean more to you today than they did before. Or maybe you can look back and see how much you have loved this world. And yet, by God's grace, you've been able to relinquish control over the things of this life. 
and surrender more and more to God's will for how to live. Forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. These are qualities we will only find when we more and more forsake this world and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And so also here, the strict preaching of God's law pays off big time. You're called to look outside of yourself to the one who has all the answers, all the refuge you need, all the obedience you and I need. God also wants his law preached so strictly because he's not only given us redemption, he's also given to us his spirit. So the law is preached so strictly so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. There is something beautiful in this. The law of God, brothers and sisters, prompts us to pray. Pray to the God who has saved you through his own obedience. Here we are reminded that the best way to pursue obedience in this life is through prayer. Through praying for God to fill us with the grace of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who regenerates us who renews us, abides in us, motivates us. True, strict preaching of the law directs God's people to look to God for good gifts, to look for an answer to our cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Yes, true preaching will push and prod us forward. It won't give us an opportunity to become complacent or to coast in this life. It will encourage you and me to keep working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It will spur us on to be renewed more and more after the image of God until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved, I read somewhere that a believer is in some respects like a golfer. Now it might be the wrong season for this, but you will forgive me for the moment. There's no such thing in golf as a perfect game unless you're able to get 18 holes in one but I'm not sure that's ever happened. In other words, perfection in golf just is impossible. Does that mean people stop playing? No. Golfers don't just have drivers. They have a lot of drive as well. They never stop striving. They are perfectionists who will never reach perfection. Isn't that something of what a Christian life is supposed to look like? You strive and you strive in the power of Christ. 
Strict law, preaching of the law encourages you to do so. Except, unlike golf, the one converted to Christ will one day reach the goal of perfection. It's going to happen one day that God will crown all of our feeble efforts. You might say that the golfer's coveted green jacket is waiting. Perfection is coming. And the preaching of God's law will help us get there. Well, our obedience to God's law, even the tenth law, is a small beginning. But obedience is there and it's going somewhere. May the proclamation of God's law live on as it encourages us to obey as Christ obeyed. And may that proclamation and our humble, spirit-anointed efforts soon be crowned with perfection. Amen.